America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth where the great struggle for control of the White House of this great nation, that great struggle is already well underway. And we're not even now talking about the potential of a Trump-Biden repeat. We're talking about what's going on in the Republican Party where there are many leaders, maybe even the majority of leaders of the party, who believe it would be a mistake to renominate President Trump. Uh, he has a great deal of baggage. He is facing some very serious legal challenges ranging on uh, between everything of uh, cheating banks when he was a businessman and uh, paying off hush money to porn stars. I'm, I mean, the entire stuff is is lurid. It's difficult. It's challenging. But David Byler, who is a data analyst and political columnist focusing on elections, uh, demographics, and more, has a piece in the Washington Post where he says anti-Trump Republicans, who again represent a significant number of people in the Republican Party, may be making a huge mistake that is painfully obvious. Uh, David Byler, appreciate your joining us on the show. Try to define what the big mistake here is that Republicans are doing, which involves them in fighting the last war, not this war. What's going on? Right. So if you talk to elite Republicans or if you uh, just read about what these higher ups are saying to you know various reporters, they're worried about a repeat of 2016. They think, oh, my God, Trump is going to come in and he's going to get a plurality of the vote, not a majority, just a plurality more than anyone else. He's going to fracture his opposition and he's going to win with something like 35 percent of the vote and it's going to be uh, chaos. But I think it's a very different campaign in 2024. Trump is not running as an insurgent anymore. He is the closest thing the party has to an incumbent. He was the president for four years. He is rallying establishment figures behind him. 70% of Republicans, actually more than that, view him favorably, whereas the number was closer to 50 in the real thick of the 2016 primary. Um, he's a candidate that has potential to create more of a consensus around himself. So that's the first factor that's different. And the second one, very briefly, is that in 2016, uh, Republicans who opposed Trump were all scattered. They had no idea what they wanted. They were all divided between all these different candidates. And even at this early phase, months and months and months before everyone who's going to run has announced their campaign, 30 percent of the Republican Party is behind Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, at least compared to 2016, Republican voters have already shown a greater potential for unifying themselves. So it's just a different landscape. And a lot of sort of high-ranking Republicans are convinced it's going to be exactly the same thing as last time. I see. One of the things that uh, they would attempt to do uh, uh, to avoid last time, and Paul Ryan just made a statement about this, is to limit the field, to avoid the idea of having 16 candidates. But now with people like Governor Hogan and Governor Sununu saying they're likely to jump in, uh, jump in 
how how is it even possible that they will be able to uh, limit the field so that Trump is not running against 16 other people? He's running against, oh, say, three or four. I mean, there's no single person who has the authority to limit the field, right? There's no gatekeeper who can say, you can run, but you can't run, and that sort of thing. Uh, really what happens is these candidates go, and they hit the campaign trail, and they see whether they have a path or not. Now, in 2016, all of these sort of low-polling candidates were under the illusion that they still had a path because they were uh, wishing that Trump would just fade away, or they thought, oh, he's a reality TV star. This is a ploy for attention. He's not serious. I have a path uh, because this guy's not permanent. But now Trump's been the president for four years, so it would be it, it is possible, but it would be a little bit shocking if Republicans once again convinced themselves that a man who was their president for four years was just going to vanish into thin air or return to TV or something like that. At this point, Trump is a professional politician. He was the most powerful man in the country. So I think that's a little bit of uh, a difference in the landscape. So if a Hogan or a Sununu places uh, sort of low in New Hampshire, just like John Kasich, another moderate, did in 2016, they might actually feel the heat to get out and not sort of deceive themselves into thinking they have a chance. Okay, uh, you mentioned DeSantis before, and DeSantis, uh, right now, if you look at the average of polls, seems to have a higher percentage of the party uh, behind him than Ted Cruz ever did in, in running against Trump. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you think there is a sense that uh, that it's not Trump who would be scaring people away from running, that if there is one factor, it would be the, the obvious uh, leadership of uh, DeSantis com compared to other names like Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, uh, Nikki Haley? Is uh, DeSantis going to scare away uh, some of the potential rivals? I would guess that he would scare away some potential rivals. We don't know who yet. Uh, and again, it's still early, but if you look at those polls you were talking about, one sort of interesting aspect is that you have DeSantis, you know, trailing Trump by 10 to 15 points right now before he's declared, before he's sort of a known quantity nationally. And all these other alternatives are under 10%. Pence is under 10%. Nikki Haley is under 10%. All these other people are in the single digits. So it is uh, more thinkable this time that if a Haley or if a Hogan or if a Sununu fails to get traction, if they're running out of money, then they might say, oh, this time there is someone who's sort of a more unifying figure for anti-Trump Republicans than in 2016 when a similar candidate would look around and say, this is a free-for-all. I have no idea who to get behind. Yeah, it does. It does seem that uh, DeSantis has that uh, that level of of prominence and and even dominance uh, of the anti-Trump field or the alternative to Trump field. Um, what what about? I, I just heard a stunning figure that among uh, when it talks to about fundraising, that that they they say the NPR reported that Tim Scott. Now, the senator from South Carolina has uh, $20 million banked up left over from his very successful campaign for reelection. 
and he's uh, going to Iowa in a couple of weeks. Uh, likely candidate? I think everyone is testing the waters right now. Uh, the thing that you mentioned about the $20 million is interesting because in a lot of ways, uh, primaries are kind of like the Hunger Games. You uh, have these candidates who are out there, and they're trying to survive. They're trying to keep enough money in their campaign to keep going. They're trying to keep uh, high enough standing sort of in the polls and in these various contests to justify uh, their their place on the debate stage or uh, themselves to voters and donors and so on and so forth. So I think Tim Scott is a plausible candidate. Uh, one thing to keep in mind with both him and Haley is that South Carolina itself may be a liability for them. Uh, when a presidential candidate comes from an early primary state, everyone voters, other candidates, the media, they expect them to win that state, but then they give them no credit for winning. Uh, you only get sort of a negative press for losing. So there's not a lot of upside and a lot of downside to being someone who's from one of these uh, early primary states. So that's that's something to, something to think about when you're thinking about a Tim Scott or some new new or anyone who's from these places. That is a fascinating point and a very important one. We've linked your piece at our website at michaelmedved.com. The uh, Trump's Republican opponents are making a painfully obvious mistake, uh, argues David Byler. More on the shaping up of the race coming up on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. that you're a hypocrite and you're the devil. You're, you're the big Hitler. You're listening to The Michael Medved Show. And on The Michael Medved Show, the uh, report from uh, the New York Times this morning about the campaign taking shape, uh, they, they point out that increased uncertainty is rippling through the Republican Party over how to beat former President Trump as an array of the party's top figures move slowly toward challenging the politically wounded yet resilient former president. Contenders have so far been unwilling to officially jump into the race, wary of becoming a sacrificial lamb on Trump's altar of devastating nicknames and eternal fury. Uh, Some are waiting to see if prosecutors in Georgia or New York will do the heavy lifting for them and charge Trump uh, with crimes related to his election meddling after the 2020 contest or hush money payments to a porn star during the 2016 campaign. Major Republican donors, many of whom have said they'll move on from Trump, have largely kept their powder dry as to who they would support instead. Former Speaker Paul Ryan has told people in private that there needs to be a smaller field. And then there is this, that former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley will become the second woman of color ever to run to be the GOP presidential nominee. Can you think of who is the other woman of color who ran for the GOP nomination? Because I, I couldn't couldn't think of it. It was not a 
a um, particularly strong... I mean, Carly Fiorina was a candidate for president and at one point was doing well in the polls, but she is not a woman of color. Uh, yes, and at one point in American history, he, they did treat uh, Italian-Americans as people of color, but uh, come on, I, I think that uh, Carly... I, I don't believe that that uh, Fiorina was her original name anyway. Uh, it was a, it's a name, uh, a married name. In any event, um, the uh, report, this is from the Charleston Post and Courier. She, she says, Haley grew up in Bamberg, South Carolina, a small town where there was nowhere to hide and uh, where her religion, her race, and even her gender would, as she put it in her first book, be a constant issue. While still a young girl, her mother told her that her job was to show others in school how she was similar rather than different. Uh, This lesson would change Haley's life and has underpinned her political strategy ever since. Uh, The, um, uh, in my email, uh, I I got today uh, from the desk of Nikki R. Haley, and uh, she says, I'm official, it's official, I'm making a special announcement in 13 days, the survival of America matters, that's why I've never stopped standing for America, and I uh, never will. America is the greatest force for good in human history. She's right about that, and we should never be ashamed to say that. Before I make my special announcement on February 15th, I am asking you to add your name to a special list of supporters. And they have a little blank for add your name. Uh, Join my list of top supporters by chipping in today. Together we will stand for America and uphold our nation's values. And uh, then a signature, which is interesting because it's one of those signatures that is... um, very firm and very much slanted to the right. And uh, uh, with a nice picture of Nikki Haley in front of an American flag. Uh, could she be a contender? The The polls don't really show it yet, but then again, people haven't focused yet. And she has a Tim Scott problem, or maybe it is that Tim Scott has a Nikki Haley problem because... As we were just speaking about with David Byler, the the challenge is they're both from South Carolina. South Carolina could end up being the first primary because that's what Joe Biden wants for the Democrats. And they may, in the state of South Carolina, decide rather than holding two different primaries on different days, they put them all together, and then South Carolina, instead of being the third major primary after uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, would be first. And uh, what Byler said is completely correct, it seems to me, which is that the difficulty, if you're uh, Nikki Haley and you're running in South Carolina, is if you don't win in your home state, you're finished. And... If you do win, people treat it as a gimme. Oh, well, yeah, it's nothing. Of course he's going to win. And by the way, and Chris Sununu, 
who was talking about a campaign. I don't believe that Governor Sununu was going to run, not this time. And he's a young man, so he could easily uh, look forward to another campaign later on. But the idea that uh, uh, Nikki Haley uh, has to win South Carolina and Tim Scott really has to win South Carolina if they're going to be if they're going to be uh, viable at all. I think that is true. And uh, the question is, how would they fare in other early states like New Hampshire and Iowa and Nevada, which is also going to be uh, up there? The um, uh, president, uh, former president, who remains the, Demo- uh, the Republican front runner, obviously, uh, President Trump took a little bit of a swipe at Nikki Haley's honor by sharing a video of her once saying she wouldn't run against him. Uh, this is uh, clip five. If he decides that he's going to run, would that preclude any sort of run that you would possibly make yourself? I would not run as President Trump ran. And I would talk to him about it. You know, that's something that we'll have a conversation about at some point if that decision is something that has to be made. But yeah, I would, I would absolutely. I had a great working relationship with him. I appreciated the way he let me do my job. Um, I thought we did some fantastically great foreign policy things together. And look, I just want to keep building on what we accomplished and not watch it get torn down. Okay. Uh, again, when you talk about taking a swipe at Nikki Haley, uh, that's only beginning. I mean, and that's pretty mild. And the the difficulty she has, and a number of people have pointed it out, is that she doesn't fit clearly into the anti-Trump lane or the pro-Trump lane, ideologically or strategically. So. What is the likely development? And what about this idea of Hunter Biden going on the offense? That's a bit of a shock. Would they seem to me a bit of a mistake? We'll be right back on the MedBed Show. I'm on the Michael MedBed Show. Medved show uh, the uh, idea of the debt limit fight is a um, <laughs> is a strategy that uh, that uh, uh, clearly makes absolutely no sense for Republicans. It's a battle they can lose, but it really isn't a battle they can win. And by the way, if somebody has a a manner in which you think a debt ceiling fight is going to benefit Republicans where they could actually win and come out ahead and uh, give us a call, 1-800-955-1776. This is uh, uh, Kevin McCarthy who met with President Biden yesterday, and he says they agreed that they couldn't have any default there had to be a, a rise in the debt ceiling. And and of course they agreed because it's one of those things that I, I'm not sure that in these negotiations with President Biden, 
that McCarthy has a strong hand because uh, it is so close in the House of Representatives. And if uh, they have all the Democrats, there are 212 Democrats in the House. And if they have all uh, 212 of the Democrats who vote to raise the debt ceiling as much as they need to keep the government operating and to avoid these catastrophic financial impacts, uh, then they only need, uh, a de- a be- of the 222 Republicans, they only need six of them to uh, go ahead and, and vote to raise the debt ceiling to get us out of this particular mess. And uh, here is uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, speaking. Think about that, the Speaker speaking. He's uh, talking about the debt ceiling as a threat to the nation. And he's right. This is clip nine. I've just walked out having an hour conversation with this president that I tell you in perspective was a good conversation. No agreements, no promises, except we will continue this conversation. I want to continue it on behalf of the American people, on behalf of the parents, on behalf of every taxpayer here, that we put ourselves on a trajectory that makes America stronger, secure, and balanced. Uh, okay. And, uh, uh, then of course he says something that I think most conservatives would recognize as undeniably true. Yeah, we have a spending problem. Uh, this is clip 10. If we continue the trajectory that we're on in the next 10 years, we'll spend $8 trillion just on interest. $8 trillion just on interest. What that means, though, too, because of the spending that has been going on, is that's why you have inflation. America's strength will shrink it. Everyone has always said it doesn't matter what occupation you're in, whether you're U.S. general or not, the greatest threat to America is our debt. Our debt is now at 120% of GDP, meaning our debt is larger than our economy. This is higher than at any time in American history. And it's higher at any time in American history when the revenues that are coming into government are higher than any other time. So we've got a lot of revenue. We just have a spending problem. And that's where I want to find that we could find common ground. Okay. uh, To put this in perspective, uh, the uh, – when you talk about uh, Mark Thiessen, who uh, – used to be a member of the Bush administration. He he writes in a very important piece in Washington Post, if Republicans want to roll back Biden's spending spree, throwing the country into a debt crisis is not the way to do it. Instead, they should do what Democrats did to get the spending passed in the first place. Go out and win. Go out and convince voters to give the GOP control of the Senate, the White House, and a bigger House majority. Then they can claw back Biden's profligate spending. Putting the country on the brink of insolvency would have the opposite effect at the polls, making those GOP electoral victories less likely. And then he writes, uh, I used to believe in using the debt ceiling as leverage. But history is clear. Voters punish the party that plays chicken with the economy. In 1995 and 2011, after delivering big midterm shellackings to Democratic presidents, 
Republicans could at least argue that they had a mandate from the voters to leverage the debt ceiling. But after an underwhelming showing in the 2022 midterms, Republicans have no such mandate today. By nominating extremists, they alienated swing voters who gave Democrats control of the Senate and Republicans an unexpectedly small House majority. Now, instead of learning their lessons, he writes, Republicans are picking a debt fight limit, one that is poised to let Biden shift responsibility uh, for his disastrous economic policies onto the GOP. That could cost them their narrow House majority. And if history is any guide, the presidency. What he's talking about is the last two times they had a fight over the debt ceiling was uh, with uh, President Clinton. And when Newt Gingrich just came in with his big Republican majority, he gained 55 seats. Republicans gained 55 seats right before that election. And then they had a fight with President Clinton, who was badly weakened, and everyone was expecting he would lose his bid for re-election. They did have a government shutdown. They had uh, a mess. Uh, the Republicans were blamed, and Clinton won his re-election, and the Republican majority in the House got reduced. Same thing happened in 2011. Is Remember, 2010 was the year of the Tea Party, where clearly the American people voted for less spending. There was a huge gain, 63 seats the Republicans gained. This time they gained five. And, you know, it's, it's a different message. And the way this goes is the, the president is supposed to submit a budget to Congress by the first Monday in February every year. Now, that's coming up. The uh, budget contains estimates of federal government income and spending for the upcoming fiscal year and also recommends funding levels for the federal government. Congress then must pass appropriations bills based on the president's recommendations and congressional priorities. If Congress does not pass all the appropriations measures by the start of the fiscal year, which is October 1st, it has to enact a continuing resolution to keep the government running. Now, they've been operating that way. The, the current budget package uh, that is shaping up for 2023 is 158 pages long. I'm, I'm actually surprised that it's that short. And uh, yeah, look at that. And that must be an error. But... Um, uh, Basically, the, the president's position not to negotiate, at least he has support from one Democratic senator, Dick Durbin of Illinois. Listen, this is clip two. Uh, yesterday, Speaker McCarthy said he thinks Biden will, quote, sit down and negotiate, close quote, today. Do you think President Biden should negotiate on the debt ceiling? Absolutely not. The debt ceiling is a critical vote for the, our economy, for jobs, for the fate of businesses, and the reputation of the United States to pay its bills. Uh, that should not be negotiated. Now, if Speaker McCarthy wants to negotiate on the budget, that's another item. It's another issue. It'll come up a little later. And I would suggest to him some of the sort of things that are coming forward from mega Republicans, a tax on Social Security and Medicare, which Senator Scott of Florida have suggested, uh, has suggested, 
uh, as well as the notion of a 30% national sales tax, mm -hmm. which is floating in the House of Representatives or non-starters. Okay, I will. <laughs> the 30% national sales tax is not an accurate way to describe it, but yes, the fair tax is going nowhere in the House or in the country. We'll be right back. to pop culture and from coast to coast this is the michael medved show and on the michael medved show uh, there's a great deal of question about what the real congressional what the real policy priorities are for the republican caucus in the house of representatives uh, because you know the old saying you only get one chance to make a first impression and I am not sure that this entire drive, which has produced such a hysterical reaction on the other side, the drive against Ilhan Omar is uh, the right way to make a first impression. And again, with the Republican Party trying to do uh, better among people of color and, and doing somewhat better, particularly with Latinos, and uh, that was a factor in the election of 2022. And it was particularly true for Latinos in the state of Texas with a popular Republican governor and in the state of Florida with a very popular Republican governor. But um, the targeting of Ilan Omar has the problem of, yes, she is a refugee. Yes, she is a woman of color. Uh, yes, she is a Muslim. And uh, and yes, she is female. Now, again, it's just too easy for Democrats to to roar back and uh, to say that these people are acting out of bigotry and especially. And, and again, this is something that uh, the Democrats have used is the GOP at the same time they were trying to strip. Ilhan Omar of her committee membership, uh, they were granting committee membership to George Santos. I mean, and George Santos actually had to be the one to back away from it. This is not a good look. This is not the right fight. And uh, the, the question about what the Republicans should concentrate on, it seems to me without question they have to concentrate on getting this debt ceiling matters settled and to, to do their job, which is to figure out how much the American people are going to spend, where the money's going to come from, uh, maybe fixing a tax system that is a mess and a nightmare. And uh, there's a new poll out by YouGov, and that, that new poll shows that Republican grassroots are very supportive of a, a lot of the things that the Republicans are talking about doing. For instance, there are particularly two proposals, and they're not specific proposals, but they, they listed as, are you in favor of increasing border security? And 90% of self-described Republicans strongly or somewhat support. Okay, that's, that's pretty decisive. And are you in favor of investigating 
Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, 85 percent of Republicans are in favor of investigating Hunter Biden. Uh, there are also high levels of Republican support for investigations into the emergence of COVID-19, 74 percent. Investigations into the charges of the FBI and the Department of Justice being weaponized, 70 percent are in favor of that investigation. And impeachment proceedings against President Biden, 71 percent of Republicans favor that. What, what's amazing is that uh, when it comes to impeachment proceedings for President Biden, 40 percent of the American public favors impeachment proceedings for President Biden. Can we stipulate here that impeachment, if you look at the two most, three most recent impeachments, because twice with Trump and once with Clinton, it's a disaster for the parties who bring the impeachment. They made it very, very difficult in the Constitution for reasons. And what's striking about this is that when you put this together with the the things that Americans are actually concerned about, uh, you're not going to see that uh, the corruption of Hunter Biden or and and the fact that he is now trying to launch a counterattack. Can we be spared from all this? He's the president's son. He's not a public office holder. And uh, yes, the idea that he might, through saying 10% for the big guy in one of those email recognitions. By the way, the letters that his lawyer, Abby Lowell, wrote uh, basically demanding federal new federal investigations do we really need new federal investigations these about the persecution of hunter biden in addition to the ongoing investigation by david weiss the prosecutor in delaware of what is actually going on with hunter biden uh how about investigating this stunning number which is that parents pay at least one monthly bill for 40 percent of millennials in a new survey two-fifths of millennials say their parents still pick up one or more of their monthly bills and the most common parental subsidy is the largest housing 24 percent of millennials say mom or dad pay their rent and 17 percent uh, say parents cover a mortgage now you may wonder about who these millennials are. That's the group between 26 to 41. Are there really a lot of people out there, 41 years old, where your parents are paying your rent or your mortgage? 19% uh, <laughs> of people 26 to 41 showed parents pay utility bills. 18% auto insurance, car payments, 16%. Okay, these are people over the age of 26. And part of what this shows is that once upon a time, we looked at adulthood at around the age of 18. And one of the things about more and more Americans going to college, and that's true that they do, is that it increases that idea of dependence. And speaking of going to college, somebody with one of the most outstanding collegiate records in American history, George Santos, uh, 
Uh, they're reporting it hot air. Uh, embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos may have stepped down from his committee assignments, but he hasn't left office. He may soon get more than just a nudge in that direction, however, courtesy of the Justice Department. The DOJ took over the investigation into Santos's campaign finance activity recently, and now it appears they'll have plenty of material to work with. A new report from the left-wing Mother Jones magazine provides the results of an investigation into many of the campaign contributions that Santos claimed to receive from some of his relatives who live in Queens, totaling more than $45,000. Who knew that he had rich relatives? While some of his alleged donors don't appear to exist, his relatives do, and they seem to have been quite generous, except one of the relatives who was visited by a reporter claimed he was dumbfounded by the idea that they had been a maximum-level donor to George's campaign. They insisted they hadn't given his campaign any money, and that could land the congressman in very hot water. As they uh, reported, this uh, doesn't mean just embarrassment for uh, for George Santos. It could mean prison. And a, a Mother Jones reporter on Tuesday visited the Queen's home of the relative who enlisted as someone who had donated the maximum of five thousand eight hundred dollars informed that uh, those donations were listed under that person's name and address in Santos's campaign finance reports. The relative, who asked not to be identified, of course, said, I'm dumbfounded. It's all news to me. I don't have that kind of money to throw around. Uh, well, neither does, uh, does George Santos right now because he spent it on, on his campaign. And some of those expenses he had on the campaign, it's extraordinary. Uh, faking campaign contributions wouldn't just force Santos out of Congress. This, that sort of thing can send a person to prison. And it's a safe bet that the Justice Department is watching the news closely. Uh, there is more on that that I think for even some folks who wanted to give this guy the benefit of the doubt... Is there any doubt of the benefit to the Republican Party of him actually going home from Washington, D.C. and his congressional adventure? We will talk about the long-term impact of uh, what we heard yesterday in the funeral of uh, Nichols and more coming up.